final set of papers were reviewed by Dr. Myron Chuchman, focusing on specifically abstracts in CLL and NHL, beginning with two data sets on a new anti-CD20 agent, ofatumumab. There were two papers. One was demonstrating clinical improvement with ofatumumab and fludarabine refractory CLL, also refractory elemtuzumab or with bulky adenopathy. And the other one was activity of ofatumumab and prior rituximab exposure in patients with fludarabine and lemtuzumab refractory or bulky fludarabine refractory CLL. The bottom line was that patients with CLL who have already had prior fludarabine therapy and have been described refractory to fludarabine, as well as patients who either have been also refractory, called double refractory to both fludarabine and elemtuzumab, or elemtuzumab does not work very well in patients who have what we consider bulky adenopathy. CLL is greater than five centimeter isolated nodes. So in those cases where they call those patients bulky fludarabine refractory patients, and the other group they mentioned, both elemtuzumab and fludarabine are called double refractory, they have a very poor prognosis. So essentially, this was a trial to look at this novel anti-CD20 or second-generation CD20 to see its activity. Of interest is that patients receive eight weekly infusions and then four monthly infusions. The first dose was 300 milligrams, and the rest of the doses, 2 through 12, were 2,000 milligrams, not per meter squared, but total dose. Of interest is that there was a significant activity Basically, in the overall response rate, it was 58% in the double refractory and 47% in the abstract in the bulky fludarabine refractory groups with a median overall survival of 13.7 and 15.4 months, respectively, which actually beat what they had discussed originally with the FDA that they did not expect to have such a high response rate. So it was quite significant. And with respect to the other abstract, briefly, basically looked at patients who had prior rituximab treatment. Many of these patients had received either fludarabine rituximab or fludarabine cytoxin, FCR, fludarabine cytoxin rituximab, the MD Anderson regimen. And they found that these patients actually had similar efficacy data, whether or not they had been exposed to prior rituximab or not. So indicating that what many people believe, some data that we'll be discussing later, if that you've had a significant exposure to rituximab, you actually may not be as responsive when you get retreated with it in the future. Now, did any of these patients sort of meet the criteria for being, quote, rituximab resistant? You know, that's a very interesting question. And in the actual abstract and in the presentation, I did not see where these patients were actually described as being truly rituximab resistant or rituximab refractory. However, you would have to assume that a number of these patients, if they failed things like FR, FCR, probably would not have responded because CLL as a B-cell neoplasm is not very responsive to single-agent rituximab to begin with. So can you talk a little bit about the structure and mechanism of action of this agent as opposed to rituximab? And you've done a lot of work in the lab looking at, I guess, quote, rituximab resistance. Where do you think biologically this fits in? It's very interesting. We published in a laboratory with my colleague, Dr. Francisco Hernandez, and all their individuals and researchers, the idea that cells exposed to rituximab actually can develop resistance. These are the cell lines. We're also seeing that with respect to clinical data, 
And I think that with the increasing use of a lot of rituximab maintenance therapies, we're going to actually see an increase with respect to rituxan resistance. What's interesting is that we'll be discussing a little bit later today the corral data, and I think that actually just gives us another example where rituximab resistance is a real entity clinically. What's interesting about ofatumumab is the specific epitope or target where the ofatumumab actually binds. Most of the other antibodies, there's approximately six or seven, say, second-generation anti-CD20s. Most of them share a common attachment to the CD20 target, what we call the epitope of the antigen, the CD20 target. What's interesting about the ovatumumab is the CD20 is an interesting protein. As it comes out of the cell, whether it's a normal B cell or a cancerous B cell, there's a small loop that comes out, goes back inside to the cell membrane, then you have a large loop that comes out. And of interest is that ofatumumab, it recognizes a significant part of the small hoop or small loop. What's believed and currently, well, we're actually just recently got ofatumumab to study in more detail in the laboratory, but what's believed currently is that that being closer, that small loop than the large loop to the surface of the cell actually may give us the ability for the immune system to activate complement-mediated cytotoxicity better. And what has been shown before is that in actually taking cells, either cell lines that have low CD20 expression, which we believe is one of the predominant mechanisms of rituxan resistance, is you don't have enough CD20. And that's been shown very eloquently by several laboratories that you need a certain amount of CD20 to activate, in particular, the immune system, complement-mediated cytotoxicity, and maybe not so much, but also it's been believed in the past ADCC, antibody-dependent cytotoxicity, where you stimulate NK cells, monocytes, and we believe also perhaps neutrophils, activated neutrophils to attack the cancer cell. So taking cells from patients, either CLL or lymphoma, actual patient samples that had fresh cells that had not responded to rituximab, it was able to be demonstrated in the test tube, ex vivo, that you could actually kill those cells with ofatumumab and either complement, you know, human serum as a complement source. So it was interesting that this type of data demonstrates, especially in CLL, where part of the problem is that you have a heterogeneous or lower expression of CD20 than you do a more homogeneous or higher expression in, say, normal B cells or in, say, follicular or large B cell lymphomas that you saw such activity as was demonstrated here. What about the issue of side effects and toxicity? What's been seen and what would you expect based on the way it's made compared to rituximab? Well, what's interesting is that with respect to the ofatubumab, this is actually a human monoclonal antibody versus a chimeric. However, there is significant side effects with the first infusion effect especially. And patients did receive steroid premeds, and it is recommended from the clinical trials that we did. You can look at it two different ways. The issue is that if you're inducing a lot of immediate complement immediate cytotoxicity, and the cells are basically exploding rapidly, you'll dampen that type of very dramatic response by using steroids and Benadryl and Tylenol as a premed whereas it still seems to be very effective. Now, in certain studies that we did, we had the option of using these steroids only for the first and second infusion, but many physicians, to be honest with you, continue to use it as a pre-med, but it does not seem to decrease the efficacy. We studied in the laboratory rituximab in the past, and it seemed that if you had steroids on board, 
you also don't lose all the activity, but you can actually decrease activity. So this is so effective, I look at it in some ways, is that you really need the steroids on board so that you can decrease the amount of infusional side effects that you have. And especially in CLL, where you have actually a fairly large number of cells that are floating around in the bloodstream as well as in the bone marrow, it may be somewhat different with patients that have low-volume disease or different types of B-cell neoplasms. But it was clear that this is quite significant, the infusional side effects that you can get with patients receiving their first dose of this drug. Now, based on these data and other data available, if the drug is made available, how do you see it being used? How would you use it outside a protocol setting? I think right now is that I'm the coordinating PI on a study in rituxan-resistant follicular lymphoma. The data is currently being evaluated this summer. We'll have more data probably in the next couple months, which may or may not be ready for ASH. That was an important study because it was in rituxan refractory follicular lymphomas. And we also have completed a study, the first phase two study of upfront ofatumumab CHOP instead of RCHOP in patients with upfront therapy of follicular lymphoma. Current studies are also ongoing in intermediate and aggressive lymphomas. But as you're saying right now, the indication probably will be in patients with CLL. The study right now was either double refractory or in patients that have bulky disease that were refractory to fludarabine or not good candidates for alemtuzumab or Campath. So I would have to tell you that it would probably be used in those patients as on indication FDA approval. Now, off-label, if you have patients that have failed, especially if we have data to support its use in rituxan refractory follicular lymphoma patients, it's not a far, say, idea that it may be tried in certain patients if approved by the insurance companies and patients that are refractory to rituxan-based therapies. Let's talk about the meeting plenary presentation that looked at the idiotype vaccine Biovax ID in follicular lymphoma. I thought that was very interesting because just in the last year or so, we know that two major companies, Gentope and Favril, actually had idiotype vaccine trials, although different. Favril actually treated their patients with rituximab, basically alone, knocking out the B cells and then using an idiotype vaccine. And the other one with Genotope was using CVP, and they wanted to avoid the rituximab. And the idea there is that you may get a response both to develop antibodies against the idiotype, which is the specific antibody that's on the surface of the actual tumor cell. It's very specific in the individual lymphoma cell. Therefore, you can use it as a target. Now, what's interesting is that the Genotope, the UCVP, and then the vaccine, and then the Favreau using rituximab get activity and using the vaccine actually did not have positive results, and those studies actually with follow-up basically are not being developed any further. This was a study that originated with the PI. I guess it originated from the NCI, and it's with BioVax ID, BioVax International, but also Larry Kwok, who's now at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. What I thought interesting about this is that one thing that they required is that the patients needed to be in truly a complete remission before they went on to receive either any type vaccine that was produced by them, by this procedure, or to receive, it was a two-to-one ratio, two patients received vaccine, one received the control. What was interesting is that originally they expected to have over 500 and some patients on this study. But because of the change of what's happened in the entire field of lymphoma, they actually had significantly less patients than that, 
that went on to do a review of the patients that they had. Originally, it was supposed to be 563 patients for the two-to-one randomization. They wanted 375. However, the Data Safety Monitoring Committee got together and said, well, let's review the results of the patients that we have currently on study and see what happens. What also is interesting is instead of using, say, our chemo that we would use as upfront therapy, they use something called PACE chemotherapy, which is prednisone, adromycin, cytoxin, and etoposide. And it should be noted that there were a significant number of patients that actually relapsed while on study, and they also relapsed while they were waiting for the vaccine to be produced. There was actually a very nice ethnoplanetary session. It was actually discussed by Dr. Levy, Ron Levy. And it was interesting because the delay to make the vaccine between, we'll say, 6 to 12 months, there was a number of patients who had relapsed from the PACE chemotherapy. And when we take a look at the results, it was interesting when you talk to other clinicians and lymphoma specialists that even though there was some improvement, remembering that this is a subset of patients, it was not the original group, but the overall survival was no different between the patients getting the vaccine or the control vaccine And disease-free survival, basically out of 117 patients, 76 that got the vaccine and 41 with the control, basically demonstrated just barely statistically significance. And the difference really with the median follow-up about, it was almost five years, was that the disease-free survival was 44.2 months, the patients getting the bio-vaccine versus 30.6 months in the control vaccine. But again, you're selecting patients who are complete remissions that could maintain a complete remission before they got the vaccine. So you're looking at a subset of patients who might have done well anyway. I guess my interesting that I was following very carefully, and I've discussed, I asked this actually as a question to Larry, is that they're now working on the samples to see actually if there's any correlation in serum samples, in in samples of blood, of whether or not these patients who actually the responders did develop an anti-idiotype, an antibody response, and or a T-cell response. That hasn't been done yet. So the question is, is there any correlation between the actual T-cell or B-cell response and these patients that responded on this trial? And I say right now, we don't know. So that's being done. So it was interesting, but I'm not convinced that in the era of rituxan-based combination chemotherapy that this will have a major impact. What about the SAC paper that was presented looking at patients with follicular lymphoma and receiving rituximab? Yeah, very quickly, this was what I call the Swiss-style, actually, way of giving rituximab. And I like actually utilizing this in upfront patients where I want to limit the amount of exposure to rituximab because in patients that were treated, they were both previously treated and untreated patients. And untreated patients who get weekly times four, and they either had a PR or a CR, they went on to receive one dose every two months times four. So just a total of eight doses. But those patients that were previously untreated had similar data that had been presented and generated by Hainsworth et al., previously untreated patients that were receiving the weekly times four, and then every six months, weekly times four for an additional 16 doses, 20 doses. This was a long-term update. And what was interesting was that they did find that the event-free survival in some of these patients, there was patients that 25% will say patients had five-year event-free and about 20% eight-year event-free survival. What I have to say, though, is there was an interesting question asked at the end of the actual session, and they said, how did you measure these patients to ensure that they were still in complete remission? 
And I think basically the answer was from the investigator was that they contacted the different sites and just asked them how the patients were doing. I don't know if that's exactly the way it should be done because you'd want to have patients required to have the same standardized either full CT scans of the neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and then give that data. But basically, it seemed like they just questioned the sites and asked how many patients were still in remission. So I don't know how exact that is, to be honest with you, to get the numbers. However, there has been other data presented at other meetings that some patients respond very nicely to rituximab that had good risk disease. And you can get numbers like this at five to eight years, 20, 25%. I thought one thing that was very interesting also, though, there was some earlier data they presented that patients that had a certain type of genotype, the VV, basically, which is two valines at site 158 on the FC gamma receptor 3A, meaning that how well do you do ADCC, the VV does much better than if you have a phenylalanine, either one or two phenylalanines at that site. It did not prove that in these long-term responders, it did not show that these patients actually had better responses than other patients. So it kind of lost its significance as we went further out. What about the paper looking at lenalidomide and rituximab in untreated indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma? Yeah, right now, lenalidomide, we worked with it in the laboratory, and I've done a fair amount of work on the PI on the trial with lenalidomide as a single agent in patients in an international trial with large cell or aggressive lymphomas. And in this case, this is interesting, is that it was looking at giving 20 milligrams of lenalidomide on days 1 through 21 and a standard dose of rituximab IV on day one of a 28-day cycle. Patients can get up to six cycles of therapy with the thought that the combination actually would be better. We actually looked at this in the laboratory, the combination of these immunomodulatory drugs with rituximab and found synergy in a human lymphoma-bearing mouse model. And what we found was that we significantly increased natural killer cells in these skid mice, and that when you add rituximab, an increased number of NK cells were able to do more effective ADCC, and we saw synergy. The idea here is that maybe you're stimulating the T cell immunity, natural killer cells, there's an anti-angiogenic effect, et cetera. It should be noted that it was very small numbers, though, right now. There was only five patients eligible for response assessment. However, four patients achieved a complete response out of five, and they had one patient at stable disease. Still early, but suggestive that these patients actually had good responses. We are doing, actually, in the CLGB, a study looking at either letalidomide alone or letalidomide and rituximab, John Leonard's the PI, and looking at patients that have had prior rituxin chemotherapy, upfront therapy, and follicular lymphoma. So it'll be very interesting to see the differences between patients who are getting upfront therapy with this versus patients receiving salvage therapy after getting previous treatment with our chemo. What about the paper looking at RCHOP14 versus 21 in diffuse large B-cell? Very interesting. This study is from the United Kingdom, and it was a phase three study in 1,080 patients that were randomized between RCHOP14 and RCHOP21 for the treatment of newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. The big debate is whether or not we can do better than RCHOP21, and it was based on some data. You know, predominantly a lot of the data came from the German study group, Dr. Freundschuh et al. And Recover60 trial looked at whether or not six or eight cycles of RCHOP14 was better than six or eight cycles of CHOP14 in 61 to 80-year age patients. And it was found that, and it's one of the bases of this trial, that RCHOP14 for six cycles 
was just as good as RCHOP14 for eight cycles in patients with diffuse large B-cell and from newly diagnosed elderly. So the idea here that really threw me right away when I took a look at the trial design was that RCHOP21 was given for eight cycles, and that included eight doses of rituximab, but the RCHOP14 was given only for six cycles with two additional doses of just rituximab to make eight doses of rituximab. So we're not comparing 6R-CHOP14 to 6R-CHOP21 or 8 to 8. You're comparing 8 of R-CHOP21 to 6 of R-CHOP14 with two additional doses. And they didn't understand that very well. And one of the reasons is because they felt that R-CHOP, it's easier for patients to go on study because most of the Europeans use eight cycles of the R-CHOP21. But I don't think that was very clear. The other thing is that every patient that got RCHOP14 received automatically GCSF, whereas the patients on the RCHOP21 did not receive it, because that actually explained a lot after they presented this, is that there was more toxicity, it seemed to be, in the RCHOP21 with respect to patients with respect to treatment delays and with respect to patients who had, there was more neutropenia in the RCHOP21 and there was more patients with febrile neutropenia, which didn't make any sense if it was 21 days if you use exactly the same type of regimen in G. But patients did not require G. And in fact, only approximately with cycle 7 of the RCHOP21, 50% of patients got GCSF. Or again, all patients with RCHOP14 got GCSF. And the bottom line was also the, of note out of these over 1,000 patients, about 250 patients were either not available or data was missing when they presented. There was no significant difference in the complete remission rates in patients, and there didn't seem to be much of a difference with respect to the survival. And so the overall survival seemed to be similar in two years between the two groups. And the real conclusion from the group was there was no RCHOP14 plus two rituxin, six of those, was no better than eight cycles of RCHOP21. And no significant difference amongst prognostic subgroups, including the patients that say that we really need work on as a patient with a high-risk international prognostic index. So it was interesting, Professor Coffier and I just bumped into him, and I said, they actually have also an RCHOP21, RCHOP14 study that's not ready for prime time yet. But what's interesting is what's not been said in this abstract or this presentation is that they don't mention things such as quality of life issues. And also with patients, how do they feel? How beat up do they get? Some people say that patients can tolerate easier. I don't believe, especially if you don't have to give it every 14 days, if there's nothing conclusive here, this study, we'll see what the Gila study shows us. Maybe it'll be ready for ASH. But it's hard to believe in patients that are especially elderly or sick that many patients I have my experience is that they have a hard time sometimes tolerating this therapy every three weeks. So I'm not convinced yet, and I'm not changing my current standard of care to include RCHOP14 now, especially with this type of data showing there's no advantage. What about the paper looking at lenalidomide in patients with mantle cell? Yes. Basically, lenalidomide, that's actually part, I'm the senior author on that study where we knew that letalinamide has activity in relapsed aggressive lymphomas. So this is in a subset of patients with mantle cell lymphoma. And what's interesting there is there were 54 patients on study. There was a overall 43% response rate, which is actually quite acceptable in this group of patients that have an oral regimen, 25 milligrams day one through 21 with seven days off. And you keep going until the patients progress or they have 
uh, new toxicity where you have to stop. And what I think is also important there, too, is that 17 out of the 54 patients had prior Velcade exposure, which is FDA-approved in refractory recurrent mantle cell lymphoma. And in that group, 53% of those patients responded. And 57%, there was only 14, but 14 of the patients also had prior autologous stem cell transplant, and over half of those patients responded to lidalidomide, suggesting that lidalidomide, with its unique characteristics and targeting of, say, not only the immune system, but the microenvironment, is going to be a player in this field. Even though it's not yet FDA-approved, we're working on a registrational trial, first now in refractory recurrent diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It's actually in production right now, but it goes to show us that in these patients that actually have gone through pretty much all standard therapies, also are failing salvage therapies, that we have something that actually can be quite useful for them. Where do you see lenalidomide fitting in right now, if at all, outside a protocol setting in either mantle cell or diffuse large B-cell? There are patients, for example, who've had prior autologous stem cell transplant that will not be good patients, either excluded from clinical trials or we have agents that are quite semi-suppressive. Many of these patients are still in quite good performance status. They feel well. I look at that and I've used basically lenalidomide in a number of these patients with prior approval from the insurance companies off-label use, and I've seen significant activity similar to what we've seen in these clinical studies. So I kind of foresee that if you have a patient that either is not a transplant candidate with either mantle or aggressive lymphoma or have failed a transplant and they're not eligible for other clinical trials, that trying letalidomide in these patients is quite reasonable with, as I said, prior proof from the insurance companies. We'll know if it works pretty quickly. You either have stabilization or improvement in disease, usually within the first two cycles, two months of therapy. If you don't see anything within two months, it's pretty much unlikely that the patient will respond. Therefore, you don't have to prolong their therapy indefinitely. What about the paper looking at lenalidomide phase two study in T-cell lymphoma? It just goes to show us that lenalidomide is not just for B-cell lymphomas anymore. And Dr. Shannon Khan from our institute at Roswell also confirmed with other studies from MD Anderson, et cetera, looked at lenalidomide in CLL. It works in CLL. It works in aggressive lymphomas, low-grade lymphomas we discussed, but also in T-cell lymphomas, also another disease that needs to have novel agents to work on. This was a presentation of just the first 24 patients, patients with relapse and refractory T-cell lymphomas, and this oral therapy actually demonstrated activity. Overall response rate was 7 out of 23 patients, 30% partial responses, but again, giving us a signal that it has activity in a disease that we need to have novel approaches to. I think the other thing it shows us is that we can actually do better than that, either using it earlier on in patients with, say, T-cell lymphomas or other diseases, or incorporating letalidomide into other treatments or upfront therapies, as long as we have preclinical data suggesting that there is some benefit, either additive or synergistic activity.